For June 29th, 2016, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Grid managers face a bewildering array of challenges in energy transition. As renewables take ever greater shares of grid power generation, efficiency and other factors have caused power demand to go flat and even fall. Utilities now have to adapt their business models, change their forecasts, plan for new distributed architectures, balance a physical system using new types of resources, and do it all while maintaining a stable and highly reliable power grid that operates within fairly narrow parameters for voltage, frequency, and other characteristics. At the same time, they have to figure out how to work with large new participants in the power grid that they have no control over, like wind and solar plants and fleets of electric vehicles. But transition is proceeding apace, and distribution service providers need to come along. Difficult questions remain to be solved about how we're going to manage our grid power transition, who the winners and losers will be, what destination we're actually headed for, and what our reasons are for executing transition the way we do. Because we're not just trying to switch fuels here. In grid power transition, we're actually trying to achieve a whole set of social goals, including halting climate change and increasing resiliency, stability, and social equity. It's a very tall order and a complex one. So in this episode, we talk with Eric Gimont, a researcher who is no stranger to complex questions and a policy advisor on energy transition in the power sector. His career path has gone from 15 years of researching quantum gravity and high energy physics at some of the world's top research institutions to work at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory and UC Berkeley to an American Association for the Advancement of Science Fellowship with the Department of Energy, and finally to a personal transition to climate and energy policy. Eric is currently a senior fellow with Energy Innovation, an energy and environmental consulting NGO. 
His interests in writing cover everything from residential energy management systems to large grids and wholesale electricity markets. So let's bring him into the conversation. Welcome, Eric, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you, Chris. So you've had a pretty interesting career path, which has taken you from researching quantum gravity and high-energy physics to a focused study of energy policy. What motivated you to, to move on to energy transition? Well, Chris, it was around 2005. I read a book, a very interesting book that a friend of mine loaned me called Thin Ice, written by a journalist named Mark Bowen, about people who went to these high-altitude glaciers in in Ecuador and uh, Tibet and places like that, and analyzed climate change through these ice core data sets. And he knew I was really interested in mountaineering and things like that. And the book is quite interesting because it, like, for example, the Ecuadorian volcanoes give you information about climate conditions in that region, and then you can kind of connect that to archaeological stuff. So I, I found the book fascinating. But as the book went along, he kind of gave this message that the scientists were freaking out about climate change. And that if you kind of got them over a beer in a bar or whatever, they really actually told you even more disturbing things. And so that kind of flagged the issue for me. And then not long after that, I was in a seminar that John Holdren gave. He's, I think, currently the president's uh, science advisor back then. He was at Woods Hole. Right. And, you know, I'd been aware of climate change back in the 80s and stuff, but kind of loosely as this like sea level rise thing. And he just put it all in context. I mean, one, the sea level rise thing was really real, you know, showing maps of Florida going under over time, and then some of the broader stuff. And then putting it together with a book kind of really got me, you know, activated on the issue. And I, I'd been doing physics for a while, and I was thinking of doing something else. And I um, talked to a, an old physics teacher of mine when I was an undergrad at Stanford who said, you know, we, we need more people in climate that have kind of an analytic and hard sciences background. So that kind of drew me into the space, and I was really attracted to the, the grid and renewable energy, one, because I had solar panels on my roof, and two, because it seems to be such a proactive thing, you know, instead of like feeling bad about what's happening, or this is something that works, and we can make it work better. And so I gradually shifted my attention from physics to energy and energy policy, and started, you know, where I, I didn't really understand where power came from in my plug to really getting more of an understanding of the whole system. And then I um, took a fellowship at the Department of Energy for people to have PhDs to work as advisors in the government. And, and that was the beginning of a big, long journey that's been fascinating. I really enjoy the topic, and it's nice to be working on something that matters. I remember you told me something about how Stephen Chu actually persuaded you to push on into policy. Yeah, well, so he was my freshman physics professor. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and it was kind of funny. We had this kind of crossing ships thing for a while. I was at, at Berkeley in physics, and then he became the director of the lab. And then I stopped doing physics and was kind of moving into the policy stuff. And then he went to DC and I went to DC a few months later. We uh, talked a few times when I was there in DC. We didn't overlap too much, but um, he was the one that kind of convinced me that having more analytic people in the space would be very helpful. And I found that that's the case, though people don't always quite know, you know what to make of you. So let's dig into the fun technical stuff. So we're both interested in figuring out what a low-carbon, high-distributed grid power system might look like. So let's start with that. I guess the obvious first question is, how much can we say at this point about what the composition of such a grid power system might look like, say, 50 years from now? And if grid power at that point is mostly coming from renewables, then how do we deal with its variability? I mean, a lot of the analysts assert that 
And renewables will have to be backed up 100% by either dispatchable conventional generators or battery storage systems. How do you unravel this puzzle? No, oh, that's a great question. The first thing is, nobody quite knows where this is headed. I mean, if you get 10 experts in a room, you'll get 15 versions of what this grid could look like. Yep. But if you start from the basics, flexibility is very important in a power system. So that was already true before we kind of went on this energy transition course. You don't always know what people are going to consume and when, and so you need resources that can be on standby to kind of adjust, and that's the regulation or, or reserves. And also, power plants go down. When I was at the DOE, there was a, an unforced shutdown of a power plant down near Florida, a, a nuclear power plant. And the people there told me if it hadn't happened on a weekend, if it happened during the week, they probably would have taken out a big chunk of the southeast part of the eastern interconnection. Hmm. So these were always issues that were there. The problem when you have renewables is they're more variable, so you have more variability to deal with. I mean, there are benefits to renewables one shouldn't forget. For example, they tend to come in smaller chunks. You don't lose two gigawatts worth of wind turbines at a time or, right. or solar panels and so on. But it's definitely more variation. And so that's what gets people to say things like, well, the sun doesn't always shine or the wind doesn't always blow. But the truth is that doesn't mean you need one-to-one -one backup because the wind may not blow here, but it may blow over there. So if you have a, a large grid, you can kind of average over things. And if you have a diversity of resources, you can use the wind at night and the sun during the day and so on. So it's never a one-to-one -one thing, just like it wasn't for, you know, we don't have a backup nuclear plant sitting around in case the other nuclear plant goes down. It's just not a very economic way to run a grid. But you do need this flexibility. And so one way we think about the flexibility is the flexibility supply curve. It was a concept that was introduced by a, a great paper, um, maybe 2006, 2007, from the Enron folks on energy storage. One of the things I learned from that paper is that the storage we do have, most of it is pumped hydro storage, was built in order to accommodate nuclear power. Because nuclear power was producing power at night that nobody really needed. And so they had to store that power so that it was available during the day when people needed it more. Wow, I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's a nice description of that at the beginning of the paper. Hmm. Maybe you can link the paper. Yeah, yeah. But there was this diagram in there, and it starts on one axis, you have kind of price, and the other axis is amount or something. I can't quite sure, but there's a lot of latent flexibility in a power system. Just you haven't organized the rules or you haven't connected things or you know, you have different ownership structures and so on. And so you're not taking advantage of that flexibility. An example of that is there was a study done called the Low Carbon Grid Study to examine what it would mean for California to go to 50% renewable power. And it came on the heels of another study by a consulting group called E3 for the big IOUs in California, but it came to very different conclusions. And one of the metrics that you look at high penetration system is the amount of curtailed power. I mean, there, there are different metrics you can use, like likelihood uh, that you'll have a blackout, things like that. But one way that some of these studies work is to look at how much electricity you have to dump. Because you, what you set it up is as over-procuring what you need, and then you have some extra. Right. And the, the E3 study had much more curtailment than the low-carbon grid study. It examined kind of what were some of the factors 
that led to having less curtailment. And one of them was, say, California's importing power from Wyoming and at some point decides it doesn't really need it. Now, if that plant in Wyoming has the option to then go on and sell the power to Colorado, which at that time might be happy to receive that power, especially since it's quite cheap, then the power is no longer wasted. It doesn't get curtailed. But that's a function of the kind of contracts and agreements you have. It has nothing to do with the underlying power system. Right. Similarly, there are rules about what needs to be on at what time in a given what's called a local capacity resource basin. So you have basins that are constrained in terms of transmission. So you think of like LA Basin, there's a certain number of power lines that go in and out of there. And, you know, over time, people kind of create these rule of thumbs about how much local thermal generation needs to be on compared to how much you're importing and so on. And if those rules don't adjust, then they can become, become barriers. So that's the kind of operational or latent. Then there's the demand side, which I know is dear to your heart. So like electric vehicles can modulate the way they charge or they can charge at night, but not during peak times, for example. You could, you know, use electricity to heat water and water heaters, preferably with heat pumps, and all kinds of demand management tools that provide you with flexibility. And then, I think I don't have them all at the top of my head, the thermal fleet you do use, you would like that to be more flexible. So you want to use things like gas for power rather than energy. If you have a lot of supply of cheap, plentiful energy from renewables, what you need to manage is the kind of the gaps in between. And so between demand flexibility, operational flexibility, and then what's left of your fossil fleet, you have a lot that you can manage with. And then finally, you get to storage. So storage, and back when they wrote this paper, was still very expensive. It's still an expensive solution now, but storage is starting to become competitive, for example, with peaker plants, the plants that get used to manage the peak loads in the 20 to 200 busiest hours of the year. And I think over time, uh, curtailment will become a strategy for managing the grid. But you have to be very careful. It's a bit of a dirty word for projects because they have an idea of how much power they're going to sell. And if you curtail, they don't sell as much, and then that undermines the project economics. But if you think about the way that technology has been dropping in price over the years, we've seen year-to-year price drops of 5-10% sometimes. I mean, not, not every year. So the idea that you might lose 5% of your power output because you're just feathering your wind farm or something with, so that you keep the ability to go back up isn't completely crazy, but it needs to be part of the project economics right from the beginning. So that it doesn't undermine the economics of the project going forward right. and it needs to be valued. So at the end of the day, there are a lot of ways to manage the flexibility and you shouldn't think of it as having this type of backup power ready to kick in when the sun goes down or the wind stops blowing. So you wouldn't say that a grid actually needs 100% backup power from dispatchable conventional generators or battery storage. But how do we really know how much we might need? I mean, you know, we've made some really heroic attempts to model this stuff out using different assumptions, studies at NREL, studies at, you know, the other national labs, trying to figure out how much storage you really need. But, you know, I, I look at these things and I go, okay, well, that makes sense. And those are reasonable assumptions to make. But in the end, 
that's all you're doing is you're modeling around some assumptions and you really don't know if those assumptions are anywhere close to what the reality will be once we get there 40 or 50 years from now. And, and I just keep coming back to the conclusion that we don't really know. We don't really know what the composition of a mostly renewable grid will actually look like or how much of the power will actually be provided by renewables or how exactly we're going to manage that grid on an hour-by-hour -hour basis or anything of that kind. What do you think? Well, that's part of what makes the subject really exciting for somebody yeah. like me. Because <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. You have to kind of re-examine some of your core assumptions. The other thing to think about is... It's not like there's an endpoint and we set the course of the ship towards that endpoint and then we just kind of leave the tiller there. You know, it's these are multi-trillion dollar investments over over years. So it's going to be an iteration. And so as we iterate, we will learn. Now the question is, are we going down a blind alley? Are we going to some crazy place? I think that's where the simulations, the work uh, you know, of renewable energy futures and things like that really helps us give some confidence that this is not a crazy direction to go into. Mm. The other thing to keep in mind is, I was thinking of this metaphor yesterday, since you've been thinking about electric vehicles. You know, think about hybrid electric vehicle versus a full-on electric vehicle. So a hybrid electric vehicle is running off electricity, you know, for 40 miles and so on. And then it deals with your range anxiety and things like that by having an onboard motor that's still taking on gasoline. So you have some of the advantages of the electric and you have some of the advantages of the power density of electric fuel and also the infrastructure. You've got gas stations all over the place. Anytime you think you're getting low, you know, within five minutes most of the time you can go someplace to pump and you pump the fuel in there quite quickly. And so during that period you have a lot available to you of the old system and the new system. But there is a price you pay. You know, it's crazy for a car to carry two kinds of engines, you know, the electric motor and the engine to create power. It's much more efficient if you kind of go full on to like designing an electric car that's built around being electric, like a BMW i3 or a Tesla or something like that. And then you start seeing some of the advantages of electric, like having all the weight on the bottom is better for handling and things like that. But you need the infrastructure like fast charging and so on. And we don't quite know what that will look like for electric vehicles. To me, the grid is a bit like that. We're still stuck with some of the choices as we transition. For example, we probably don't need an AC grid. Only about 10% of the loads are synced to the AC 60 hertz signal. So most of the stuff that uses electricity in your house either is indifferent, like a resistive light bulb, or actually has to invest in turning that AC signal into a DC signal. And with the power electronics we have and so on, in the long term, maybe the grid we need doesn't need AC. So these kind of design decisions that we are stuck with from the old system that maybe we don't need in the future. And so that's like the equivalent of having to carry an old engine around. Now, the, the beauty of having both for a while is as you have this stock of power plants, like in California, we have a lot of combined cycle plants that are generating less energy then they're more available for power. If something's running at 90% of capacity most of the time, then the best it can do is like go up another 5-10%, and that's assuming there's no outages and so on. If it's running at 50% of the time, most of the time, or if it's not running all the time, then it's available to do things for you. So I think there's going to be this kind of intermediate period where we have some of the disadvantages of the old, and 
there are going to be some advantages to having both the old capacity and the new capacity. For example, in Texas, right now they have very low power prices because they still have a lot of old coal plants that probably won't be around in five or ten years, and they have a lot of new gas plants and wind plants that are generating at the same time. And so their customers are taking advantage of low prices right now because of the transition that we're in. That's a really useful analogy. I like that idea of comparing it to a hybrid versus a full electric car. So, you know, something that often gets left out of these scenarios is the importance and and the shifting role, I think, of energy efficiency. I mean, it always seems like an afterthought. We tend to think about supply and demand, but cutting down the demand to size before we try to build all the new renewable energy capacity to meet it is obviously the right way to approach this. I mean, if I were to try to design a grid right now for the future, I'd start with one that needs at least a third less power because of energy efficiency improvements. And maybe because of, you know, avoiding losses like you were discussing from converting from AC to DC. And then I go from there. So what do you think the potential for energy efficiency is now and in the future? That's a a great question. I used to talk to the people at ClimateWorks and they were always trying to quantify how many tons of CO2 they were abating with various kinds of strategies. And, And the kind of renewables and energy efficiency sometimes were at odds with each other, you know, because... By putting energy efficiency, there was less need, and it it messed with their calculus. But in my mind, energy efficiency is a really important part of the mix because if you think less about megawatt hours and more about the services you need, then if I have you use a third less energy for all the wonderful things you want to do with electricity, and then every unit of clean power that I put in is delivering 50% more value in a clean way, I got very interested in what was driving CO2 emissions down in the U.S. power sector. So if you go to a EPA thing or the EIA, sometimes the CO2 data is a little lagging, the power generation data. But if you look at these things, you'll see that 2007 was the peak year for electricity generation in the U.S. I think we almost met that year in retail sales in 2014, then we went down again in 2015. So it's been pretty flat since 2007, and emissions have gone down a lot. Now, people talk about natural gas switching out coal as the main factor, and that was the question I wanted to investigate. And I started kind of comparing the role of renewables and natural gas fuel switching. And there was an article by Amory Lovins, your your chief scientist, pointing out the role of energy efficiency. And uh, it gave me a real headache. I was like, oh, this analysis is already hard enough, and now I have to think about this. But... I tried to make a solid effort of it. Uh, I looked at all the utility programs reported by um, ACEEE. I uh, looked at some papers in the industry about what some of the codes and standards might have done. And it became very clear to me quite quickly that A, energy efficiency had done a lot more than the other two in getting CO2 out of the system. And B, that it's something people really aren't talking about enough. You know, the fact that load has been flat or almost flat or even declining for the last eight years is a significant issue for utilities, even for planning. You know, when we think about planning power systems, it's always in this element of, well, we're going to need to build something new. But if your demand's going away, it's a kind of different system to manage. That's right. And it's, it's really striking how little this gets talked about. I mean... I love solar panels. I've had them on my roof since 2004, but solar panels in 2014 were providing 
10 terawatt hours, the distributed PV stuff, not the utility scale. 10 terawatt hours to the grid, and the grid generates about 4,000 consumes a bit less. Energy efficiency was clearly much more in the 300 terawatt hour range, or maybe 200 terawatt hour range. Hmm. It's hard to quantify exactly, but you can't ignore it. Right. If you pretend that it's not there, then you're not understanding the data properly. Yeah, it's hard to quantify because it's sort of a counterfactual, right, to do that. Right. But, you know, I think not only do people not think about it enough or make it enough of a priority, but there's also been, you know, for those people that really think deeply about this stuff, there's also been a debate about the rebound effect. I mean, I assume you've looked at some of that literature. What's your, wh where do you come down on that question? Well, it's a complicated question, and there was these things about lighting, how lighting got cheaper and more and more lighting gets used and so on. Yeah. I'm a pragmatic guy, Chris. You know, I like to look at the data. You look at the data, and there's just a sharp kink around 2007 in the amount of electricity consumed. And, you know, there's a dip for the recession, but it kind of recovers. It's not the recession. The recession had an effect, for sure. It's close in magnitude to energy efficiency. But there's ways you can kind of look at it. There's the economic engines of the EIA. And, you know, what predictions were they making, what actually really happened, and so on. And there's no way you can jig the data around and not see the effect of energy efficiency in there. So I'm sure there's some rebound. I'm, I'm sure it's hard to kind of completely quantify these things. But really, it's had a major effect on our power grid in terms of emissions. And it must really be hurting the utilities to not be seeing growing loads. I talked to a utility of guy in Texas, uh, I think he was with Encore, he said he went to a uh, conference of like utility executives and somebody asked, who here has growing load? And there was like a room of like two, three hundred people and like four or five people raised their hands. <laughs> yeah, no, it's tough. If your S&P 500 company has to grow your profits every year, that's, that's a big paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's something that I've actually dealt with a lot in, in my most recent research, you know, looking at how these demand curves have remained quite flat or even declined in, in a lot of the country and what the implications are of that for future grid planning. Yeah, and RMI has really been at the forefront of these things, so you're in with the right folks. Yeah. <laughs> the, the other thing I should say is there's kind of a new kind of EE on the horizon. You know, there's people like Mac that are trying to be more results-oriented with energy efficiency instead of kind of these programs and getting into kind of counterfactuals and, and crazy measurement and evaluation. They're kind of more using all this data that we're getting from smart meters and so on to just do something kind of like what I was doing. It's like, is consumption going down? I mean, you have to factor in some other factors like temperatures and so on. But there are ways now with the type of analytics that we have to kind of start extracting whether something is happening. So that's one reason for optimism, I think. Because that will open the door to more creativity in getting to the energy efficiency. And energy efficiency is really the silver buckshot type thing. It's just so many different ways you can accomplish it, and every building's so different. The other thing that's interesting development with energy efficiency, my friend Sam Borgeson wrote his thesis on using smart grid data in California, and he shows that you can shape energy efficiency instead of thinking of it as a kind of you know straight haircut of consumption. You can think about energy efficiency measures that might target peak load or you know, behave in differently in one geographic region to another or target different types of customers and so on. So I think the line between energy efficiency and demand response and demand management is going to start getting blurred too. 
Yeah, I would agree. So as we get into this more highly, you know, renewable grid, how much of a target do you think it would make sense to set for, you know, how much load reduction we can do through efficiency, let's say 50 years from now, from what would have been? Yeah, I'm not as much of an expert on these things. Partially, I think it's my analytical data-driven yeah. side gets just thrown off by the sheer complexity and, and kind of obscurity in, of this area. So if you ask me to take a guess, I think your one-third figure's right up there. I mean, I, I like the ideas in the in the Renew paradigm of the reinventing fire. And we were talking about if you reinvented a grid, where you're at. You know, the people at uh, Lawrence Berkeley Labs are talking about creating these systems for people in the developing world where they could be running a refrigerator, a TV, a fan, a few lights, and a phone charger or something for 170 watts. They're very efficient DC appliances. Yeah, we talked about that in uh, episode 12. That's yep. right. You talked with Justin. Yeah. Yep. So it gives you a sense of what, what can be accomplished. I mean, that's one big one, the AC-DC thing. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Sometimes I wonder if these new USB power standards will be um, kind of part of the route that takes us there. Hmm. Because I've seen houses now, uh, like my in-laws in Australia, where all the sockets have a USB thing. I, I assume they're still like converting AC power back to DC. But I imagine houses at some point might just wire up for, for DC and provide USB sockets all over the place. That's an interesting idea. So shifting back just briefly here to EVs. I think it would be helpful here if we dug down a little deeper into the concept of flexible loads. So, you know, one of the key elements to the future composition of the grid is what you can do with large flexible loads to shift them around and adjust for the rest of the system. And I recently wrote a paper for the Rocky Mountain Institute about the value that electric vehicles can deliver to the grid if they're charged at the right times and in the right places. You've also written about that subject in an article for Green Tech Media, and I'll, I'll link to both those pieces in the show notes. But you note that distributed resources like EVs and also things like rooftop solar, distributed storage, and other responsive loads can actually provide a wide range of services to the bulk power market, to the transmission grid including peaking capacity and ramping and voltage support and improved system efficiency. And based on my own research, I totally agree with that. But in order to deliver those services to the transmission grid, the distribution system has to cooperate. It has to draw power at the right time and place. And you framed this issue through three different lenses, a physical lens that takes into account the physical properties and locations of distributed resources, an economic lens, which considers the economics for utilities and energy vendors, and an information and control lens, which is how the physical system is monitored and managed. So let's just use EVs as an example and explore these ideas a bit. How do these three lenses help us understand, for example, the value of managing EVs on the grid? Okay, that's a great question. Let's take EVs for a second. I want to flag something. So I switched to an EV um, about two, two and a half years ago. And, uh, you know, the first thing I noticed is my consumption for the house went up by 50%. I mean, I guess I was covering a lot of it with the solar and so on. But that focuses your attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had installed all these inductive monitoring devices on some of the circuits in my house so I could see what was doing what and so on. And I was just not paying attention to it. And I was not putting that stuff into, like, rate schedules and 
by the way, I, I couldn't find it like an Excel spreadsheet with my rate schedule in it. You know, I had to kind of type everything in by hand. So, you know, I, even though I had all this stuff and I was an energy geek, I wasn't really looking at my rates and things like that. But as soon as I had the electric car and it was consuming all this electricity, well, now I really looked at my rates and thought about, like, when am I going to run my car? I mean, when am I going to charge it and setting the, the charging time? And so yeah, on. yeah. As a somewhat trivial aside, the metering stuff was kind of nice in that I have a sense of like when stuff breaks down in my house and I understand better like what's going on or oh, this right. fridge is clearly dead. It's been doing this for a few days. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think that's a value stream people underestimate in the, in the energy management systems. Just the knowledge, yeah. Just the knowledge, yeah. yeah. So back to your question. So imagine, imagine I want to get uh, you know, regulation out of EVs. And I convince uh, BMW or Tesla or Nissan or whatever to kind of manage their whole fleet of things out there and, you know, sign up their customers and so on. That could be a great resource for the grid. You know, imagine we get to those million EVs and they're eight kilowatt units or something that, you know, that's like eight gigawatts. I mean, they're not all at once and so on, but you're talking in the gigawatt scale of adjustable load. That's huge. Yeah. That's a whole nuclear power plant right there. Yeah. But now think about it from the distribution circuit. Suppose like my whole electric car fanatic club like moved to my neighborhood and we're all living here and we all decide, hey, you know, 11 o'clock is the best time to start charging, right? Not 11.01, not 11.02, not 10.59. Well, what, what happens on my local circuit? You know, we all start charging at 8 kilowatts, you know, which is like three, four times a normal household load all at once you know, all in my pocket, well, things are going to go crazy on my local circuit. You know, that's going to create big voltage spikes and so on. And the California ISO doesn't care. We could be, you know, one car could be in Bakersfield, one car could be in San Francisco, one in L.A. And, you know, it might be happy to send signals out through third parties or directly to, like, start charging exactly at, at 11. And But if that all happens in your neighborhood, you're going to probably blow a distribution transformer. Right, exactly. So part of the physical lens is kind of understanding like where things are and how they affect things. Mm -hmm. You know, in practice, most of what a local distribution network works about is is how often they have to move their tap changers on their local transformers. But they're not used to thinking about things too dynamically. They have kind of these templates, and that that drives the the investment. And then mostly they, over I think, over-invest that's that's a loaded word. They you know over engineer to make sure that things work. And so there's there's still I mean I think we can do a lot of stuff today with DERs and so on, and we probably won't hit some of these physical barriers. But I've talked to like a distribution engineer. We we had one column talking to distribution engineers. So we talked to a guy in, in Germany, and he mentioned how they have these systems where they um, heat bricks at night with electricity, and then that provides heat during the day. And he was saying, yeah, if all these bricks turn on at once, it created problems for them. And so they, they developed this program where they would kind of rotate through houses yeah, so that it would kind of smooth it all out. Right. I don't know. I hope that gives you a sense, a more visceral sense of kind of what some of the physical challenges might be. Sure. And so I, I think it's important for advocates and people like that not to completely blow off the utility when they talk about some of the challenges that they have. The issue is often incumbents use reliability or issues of that ilk to defend the status quo. So there really needs to build up over time a trust between people who want change, people who want things not to break, that we're all on a common page and kind of understand the issues. And that brings me to what I call the economic lens. 
which is if there's no incentive for the utility to have DER succeed, it's going to be really hard to build that type of trust. And it's they're not going to put in the investments necessary to make it work. Or they're going to see it as, oh, this is a great opportunity to gold plate and and just kind of put the investment everywhere as long as it gets put in the rate base and not necessarily maximize the utility for the customers and keep the cost down. Right. And that's, I think, in the transition, in the energy transition of the electric grid, we got to make sure that it never gets too expensive. Mm-hmm. Overall, it would just be bad for everyone. In the pioneer states, in the pioneer places, it, it would be terrible. It would slow things down because people would just turn and say, hey, look, it's very expensive. You can't do this stuff. So we really have to keep an eagle eye on kind of what happens to cost and, and how costs are justified. And then, you know, the third element is the, the independent system operator that manages the transmission grid and even the utility, they're not used to thinking of millions and millions of devices that they need to talk to. So you need the command and control part of things, and you need communications that give you information about how much people consume or how much people provide so you can pay people adequately. So that whole communication layer is going to become important. And you know, one of the things I brought up is one way to gold plate is to kind of build you know, all your own modems, all your own fiber, all your own stuff as a utility, but that's not necessarily you know, maximizing for society. And what I proposed in, in one of the articles is what I would call, borrowing the words from Ronald Reagan, trust but verify. If you have ways through the internet or other telecom assets that already exist to really give a fine grain signal and it's going through some kind of third party aggregator and so on, all they really need to do is to kind of audit that person and make sure they're doing it right. You know, and as long as, as that person has an incentive to keep you know, being honest with that stuff, I mean, there might be some resilience issues and so on, but as long as that person knows that there's these audits going on, then they have an incentive to make it work. And an example of that is I saw a few years back uh, Arun Majumdar, who ran uh, ARPA-E at uh, DOE and then was a vice president for energy at Google, was talking about this experiment at Google where they had several electric cars in their parking lot that were responding to a, what's called a regulation signal, so a signal that helps you balance the grid on a five-minute by five-minute basis. They were responding to a signal perfectly. You know, here was the black line that was like what the system operator wants. And here was the red line of like what all these chargers are doing, and they're like right on top of each other. Hmm. And then he showed the line of like what a big generator was doing at the same time to respond to the regulation signal. And it was, you know, like in the neighborhood, but it was off and off, and it would kind of, it would kind of swing up and down. It wasn't, you know, an exact response. But they said, look, that guy can get paid to provide regulation, even though he's doing a so-so job because he's got the revenue grade meter. But we don't have these individual revenue grade meters at, at all these cars. But look at what our aggregate of managed charges can do. It's a much higher quality thing. Hmm. So I think that's something we really have to look at is how does the, you know, the payment system, the, the auditing system, and the control systems work without having to kind of build a whole parallel architecture. Yep. It's those very same issues that, that I reached and got to the point where I was like, hmm, okay, this is just going to take some more development. We're not really sure where this is going. And and the best we can do is try to provide some guidance. And, you know, one of the other interesting questions that comes up there is what's your best market design in terms of who should own this infrastructure? I mean, all all these 
services and values can exist, whether the charging of the vehicles is being controlled by the user or directly by the utility or via a third-party aggregator who can operate a network of charging stations or at least control them in order to provide you know, a, a demand response service or a frequency regulation service. But there's differences in terms of how quickly you get there and what the social equity side of things looks like and so on, depending on who really owns it. So how do you see the pros and cons of utility ownership or control versus having like a third-party aggregator provide these services? Yeah, that's a really important question, one that I think a lot of regulators are, are struggling with. So on the pros, you know, there's clearly an efficiency advantage to having utility manage some of these distributed assets because they can provide an integrated frame. That, you know, they can do distributed resource planning or some kind of integrated planning effort and try to think about where things should be to optimize and they have access to capital. They uh, can run auctions to try to keep prices down, things like that. And also, they're more sensitive to the social mandates. So they can make sure that it's a grid that works for everybody, like low-income customers and so on, and not just something where people who have access to capital can take advantage and others can't. You know, The problem is, back to that economic lens, they're not always incentivized to do what's best to optimize the system or, you know, what's best for their customers. Now, you know, I'm not saying they're bad people and so on. It's just we tend to live through the incentives that we react to. So I think it's important to create a regulatory environment that if you're going to let them own assets, that has them have the, the proper incentive. The other way I think about it is if you take something like storage, you look at any kind of complex system like a tree or rainforest, whatever, the storage tends to be distributed. So and not like there's just one small size and you see it everywhere, more like a kind of a fractal nature. I was a little disappointed that Lorenzo didn't talk more about his idea of fractal grids when he was on your show. Mm. Where you see kind of a self-replicating structure. So you you know a little bit of storage here at this level and then where things kind of come together, a slightly bigger storage there and things, you know, at a main trunk and another big bit of bigger storage there. And for the customer, I think what you will see evolve over time, I'm not sure when exactly this will happen, but it's clearly the direction things are going, is some kind of energy box or energy management system, something that talks to the grid and is kind of like your agent. And you don't worry about it much, but it thinks about when your fridge is pumping or how to charge your car or whatever. It manages all these things for you. And I think for that agent to have some of the storage at its beck and call gives it some leverage with the, the utility. But if the utility owns all the stuff, then you know we're back to kind of full-on monopoly, and we're not taking advantage of the possibilities of, of competition and, and the creativity of different distributed actors. I like that idea of there being sort of a little box with a little storage on board. That actually could be a very interesting part of all this. And it brings up the importance of the communications infrastructure. I mean, one of the missing pieces in this whole question is the communications for utilities to monitor the performance of various DERs on their systems and other grid conditions. And so far, you know, we've only got advanced metering infrastructure in about half of the grid's customers in the U.S. And you've actually suggested that instead of utilities directly connecting DERs to their control systems, 
For example, requiring a revenue grade meter to be installed at each residential EV charging station, like you were just talking about, which is slow and costly, that they could actually use existing telecom assets like cell phone towers or the internet to more efficiently collect real-time data on the actual grid conditions and then distributed resource performance. And I guess that kind of leads into this whole Internet of Things concept as well. And that all makes sense to me, but I suspect that most utilities would actually consider it too risky, or at least that they'd be unwilling to give up total control over the communications and would want the data delivered from equipment that they've already deployed and certified or that has their stamp on it in one way or another. And I just wonder what it would take to get them to give up their requirements for revenue-grade meters and uh, support these other communications mechanisms. Yeah, well, that's also a good issue. I mean, yeah, what we've seen so far is lots of pilots, right? Right. So it's kind of like, you know, death by pilots, and and there's a lot of tentativeness (laughs) from the C-suites. I think, you know, I think if they had more certainty about kind of what this all means for their business models, there'd be maybe a little less fearfulness about you know going this way you know, one of the beautiful things about america is we have so much diversity that yeah, i think we'll see different solutions or different approaches take place in, in different parts of the country so we'll get a chance to as part of this iterative energy transition we'll get a chance to see a lot of different ways that things can go but you know on on the plus side of what might motivate utilities you know if they have the right incentives they could find you know much cheaper stuff from the DERs, and that might push them in this direction. There's also cybersecurity risk. So one thing somebody told me, an expert in the kind of energy and, and communication space, told me is, you know, they don't want to be in all the Internet of Things because if they're in the Internet of Things, they're responsible for all that cybersecurity and potential infections and so on, you know, all the way into their main systems, and they they really need to kind of firewall themselves from that. So at some level they're better off with a lot of third-party aggregators or different people who are kind of exposed to the kind of raw messiness of the Internet of Things, and they'd rather have kind of cleaner protocols that talk to kind of aggregated entities. So I think in the long run for utilities, getting like too far into the weeds isn't necessarily the best way to go. That's a fair point. I mean, there's, there's certainly a very justified defensive aspect to their stance, for sure. They, after all, are required to maintain a reliable and safe and unhacked grid, right? Right. But I guess what I was bringing the point up is, of course, you could take it as, well, let's just not do the DER stuff. Then we won't have any of these cybersecurity problems. But say, granted, this stuff is happening. Some people are in the kind of, you know, utilities are like the Rockefeller octopus and they want to control everything. Well, it's not really true. And there's some areas that don't quite make sense for them to go into. And they'll be happy to have an ecosystem there. And so if the regulators and, and the society gives them the right incentives and rewards them well and give them like visibility towards good financial health around these areas, I think we will see them more open to having third mm-hmm. parties participating. Yeah. Well, you know, this, this kind of leads into a broader question about how well distribution utilities are adapting to the new reality of DERs or thinking about how to leverage them in their systems in order to provide value to the transmission grid. And, you know, that that leads to another area that I've been researching, and that's how to get utilities to prioritize 
distributed energy resources over big centralized conventional grid assets like big power plants and big substations, or at least give DERs a chance to compete on an equal footing. And this is an area that I think most utilities aren't quite yet comfortable and familiar with. Perhaps they don't know that a portfolio of DERs can provide the same services as a big power plant, or perhaps they consider it too risky, and they they don't really want to try it over something that's tried and true, like a big gas-fired power plant. What do you think the big challenges are in getting utilities to reorient their CapEx planning around DERs? Well, the first one is incentives. Utilities are engines for taking capital and getting nice rates of returns on it. So if you're going to be able to deploy more capital and your regulators aren't going to complain by going the old power plant way, why would you go the other way? Mm. Then there's experience. They just don't have enough experience with these things. And they're naturally very conservative entities. Some of them are in the power markets where you have incumbent like generators and so on who are actively going to resist competition. You know, if I was a peaker plant, I wouldn't be so happy about a demand response product that's at half the price or batteries coming in and eating up my market. There's a certain inertia. And then at a deeper level, I think there's two things. One is a lot of this takes a shift to what I would call a more statistical thinking. Like, let's go back to that Google car example, right? They don't really know who's going to be parked there all the time. Somebody might come in, you know, leave early. Or maybe there's 301 cars one day and 299 cars the other day. So there's this kind of weird kind of certainty issue. You know, I don't know what, who exactly is providing me with this regulation. And imagine if you're now you're you're like Nissan or BMW and it's like a distributed fleet. I don't even know where some of these things are. So if you're thinking in terms of this kind of very deterministic model, like I know where every asset is and what its current state is and how it will behave, then all this stuff is very fear-inducing. But if you have this kind of more statistically based mentality, well, yeah, maybe that car will be there or not that car. But you know what? 300 cars or 1,000 cars, some are there, some are not there, is actually a more reliable aggregate asset than a power plant. Hmm. It's going to be down less often. And it's never going to be all the way down. There's going to be very few days where it'll be like zero cars. I don't know, maybe New Year's or something. And those would be fairly predictable. So I think there's that deeper level of becoming more comfortable with the kind of statistical nature of things. And then you still need the ecosystem to exist. You know, you still need the vendors and the equipment and any kind of people you can talk to that make sense and have any kind of package solutions the way that makes sense for the people in the utilities. And then there's also a legal dimension to these things. For example, I was talking to somebody at EDF about what does it take to have non-transmission alternatives be looked at the same way as like new generation or new transmission and something like the PJM market? Well, you know, transmission lines are clearly like interstate things. Makes sense for FERC to regulate them. The wholesale power market's been given over to these markets, but they don't quite know how to get into whatever vague notions one might have about non-transmission alternatives, even if they're much cheaper. They don't have an easy way to factor them in. And then sometimes the rules aren't just written right. Sometimes the rules, I was talking to about a storage project that was just not performing in PJM. And part of the reason was it was basically having to go to full power right away because it was required to do as best it can to be at, I don't know, 800 kilowatts or whatever it was. And so it was just draining itself right away and not particularly useful. And then when they figured out like that rule doesn't make sense, then they had a really nice asset that was responding well to regulation signals. And so we often see these kind of institutional barriers 
you know, something needs to be stay on for four hours, but does it really need to stay on for four hours? Or couldn't you have a rotation, you know, a relay team of assets? And so often that's the problem with these kind of multi, the non-vertically integrated utilities. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, it really does sort of begin with the regulatory framework, doesn't it? Yeah. Because that's what the utilities are working within. So what are some of the things that regulators should be thinking about and doing at this point to encourage the transition? Well, one thing a lot of my colleagues are very excited about is what's called performance-based regulation. The idea that you should try to pay for what you want and not for what you got. Or another way is pay for what you want and not for what you used to get or what you used to need. And so with this approach, there's a whole variety of different approaches, but you're trying to focus, instead of telling utility, oh, this was an okay investment, this wasn't an okay investment, or this will be an okay investment, this is not an okay investment. Focus more on, I'd like to get peak use for Manhattan down by this much every year. You know, I'd like to use my transmission lines more efficiently every year, and, and things like that. And then reward the utilities around how well they perform. And now that's a tricky game, because if you still leave on the table huge amounts of money from just rate recovery on capital deployed, they may not shift in the way you want. And then the big issue becomes kind of information asymmetry. You know, how well does a regulator know what a utility might or might not do when they're structuring incentives? Because you know, if they end up giving the, the utility too big an incentive and the utility actually can perform quite easily, then the public's going to get mad at them or consumer advocates are going to get mad at them. Why do you give away so much money? They had this easy solution and they did it. Why don't you just mandate that they do this solution right off the bat? I think from the utility's point of view, there's an advantage to keeping the regulators more in the know, you know, providing them with cleaner and better information in the long term because it, it creates a tighter coupling between the two and more of an opportunity to kind of seek a win-win for the utility and for the customers instead of kind of big swings where maybe they, they have a big payoff on this you know, accomplishment, but then there's a, a feedback mechanism where everybody's angry and then they don't find another way to kind of find value. Another issue in the PBR world that is hard to deal with when you're talking utility is could there be a world where utility is more profitable but smaller? At some level, for investors, more profitable is what they care about. But if you're running a, a company, typically your goal isn't to make it smaller. So that, I think, will be another challenge with thinking about performance. You know, especially, like you said, like we were talking about, you know, if loads are going down, how are you going to provide you know, 5 6% growth or whatever on your, on your invested capital? Well, in addition to performance-based regulation, don't we also need some very deliberate signals that, that we really want to build a renewable future? Yes. I mean, it, and, and so for regulators, what does that look like? Well, I mean, I think at some level they need the backup of legislatures you know, or governors. You know? So California, we have these clear long-term goals for 2030 now that organizes the mind and helps the utility and the regulator be on the same page. In New York, they have the renewable energy vision. That's very exciting. I'm not sure, and you guys at RMI have been very involved, I know, in, in helping them frame that. But I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. So I think if, if you have this kind of energy, it really helps. Now, it's not a coincidence that this is happening in New York and California. These are big states with lots of regulatory capacity. They have big staff. 
Hawaii is having to do some of the same things that New York is thinking about with 10% or 5% of the staff. That's right. So I, I think clear signals, you know, clear leadership, all these things really matter. And at some level, both utility executives and regulators have to learn to be brave. You know, they have to step out from the pack. And there will be rewards. I think, I mean, one way I've, always, I've thought to talk to state decision makers and stakeholders is some of these utilities will be the big winners. They'll learn the energy transition, they'll, they'll make a good transition, and then they'll be eating up utilities in other states or whatever they didn't learn. Right. You know, the first energies or whatever will not be the big companies of the future, I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think you've made a good point there that there's a role for regulators to play, but we shouldn't expect regulators to carry all the water, right? There's a role for legislators as well. You know, there's a role for elected officials to just set a vision. I mean, I think actually Governor Jerry Brown has been brilliant in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we should probably dig in a little deeper to the market side of this transition and, and how we use markets to get from where we are now to a mostly renewable grid. I think we all understand that that time of use rates, for example, are a good start. And that's a place where regulators have played an important role in putting those kind of rates in to help the utility manage its load shape. But I think if we want to end up with an optimal design, we're ultimately going to need nearly real-time rates for all loads in all places and get away from things like fixed charges and demand charges or even interval-based time-of-use charges, which are currently being attempted as uh, essentially stopgap measures to help utilities survive the transition. What do you think about that idea of just kind of moving the whole grid and all the assets on it to kind of a real-time pricing model? What do I think of that idea? So initially, I was kind of in favor. You know, I think on paper, it sounds great. And obviously, you wouldn't want like you and I to be like responding to real-time prices or whatever, right? This energy box I talked about before, it would be talking to these things. And this would be like, I don't know, like the machine language or like the Right, you know the the way the internet has all kinds of protocols that you and I never have any dream of what they are. Right, the most we would do is set some parameters on it, and, you know, as to right. the the range we wanted to operate within. Right. Yeah, I came home today. My house was a little too hot. I didn't like it. You know, whatever you do, like fix that. But then, you know, if you dig deeper, it's a little bit like the energy only market approach in Texas for the wholesale market. It, I think on the wholesale level, nobody quite knows how the markets will evolve, but I, I suspect that the energy will kind of decouple from real-time stuff. That energy will become more and more of a kind of a bulk commodity that's not that time sensitive. And then there'll be a more active market and kind of energy shifting and energy management and things like that. At the residential level, I wrote a chapter in a book called The Future of Utility, Utility of the Future, that was called The Customer-Centric Approach to the Grid. It's like if if you thought about the, the grid from the beginning, not what you have today, but kind of uh, first principles. What are all the things the grid does for you? And it really, I was surprised at the end of the day, you know, my list ended up being like 20 or 25 different things long. And a lot of them you just don't think about. You start thinking about them more when you design like a battery plus PV system out in the woods or something. You know, like like the size of the pipe, you know, like you consume a whole bunch of power some months and then you go on vacation for a month and you hardly consume any. You don't really incur any penalty for that. So there, there are a lot of benefits that accrue from connecting to the grid. And it's unclear to me that we should think about all these benefits tied to kind of just energy provision. 
Now, maybe, like you say, real-time becomes this very granular approach that allows you to capture all kinds of different value streams through one signal. But even if that was true, there would have to be overlays of different kind of risk management products or reconfiguration products that would kind of disconnect you from that. I mean, last year in Texas, the wholesale prices dropped almost 40%, and the average retail price dropped 3%. You know, that's because there are these like buffering mechanisms between the wholesale and the retail. And something like that would have to exist even, you know, with, with this fancy energy box. So I don't think that the real-time pricing is a panacea. And I think there'll be different approaches. For example, an approach would be your energy box negotiates with the grid and either buys a complete block of energy, just a fixed amount. You know, like I'm going to consume one kilowatt per one hour or something like that. Or it could have a block where it says, look, I'm going to consume between minus one and plus one kilowatts at my whim, and you, you're going to just track that for me. You're going to provide squiggles. Somebody told me uh, the other day that power, the utilities are companies that take blocks and provide squiggles. So that would be the <laughs> squiggle provision. And then a third block could be the opposite, where you as the, the prosumer or whatever are providing a squiggle back to the utility. Where you say, as long as you're within this minus one to plus one kilowatts or whatever, I'll just follow your signal. And my energy box is going to manage my internal storage or my fridge or whatever it has to do back here. And you can have a combination of those blocks. See, So that, that would be kind of a market system where there's different elements of real time and other things going on. Right. But we're still a long way to that. I think we probably don't want it to get into blunt instruments like demand charges and, and fixed charges. I think because it's going to become distortive. You know, in California, the biggest market now for, for storage is demand charge management. Right. And now, if the demand charge is really not aligned with cost causation for the utility, then over time, that's going to create some kind of distortion, and then they're going to have to change those rates or do something different. And then what happens to all these business models? I mean, the nice thing about storage, I mean, to reassure those customers, not that I'm invested in STEM or whatever, is... It's a pretty smart device. It can do a lot of different. It can behave a lot of different ways, right? So it could probably adapt to different kinds of rates and so on. But I think in the long run, utilities are going to make life hard for themselves if they create too many firewalls with fixed charges and demand charges. Once you know solar costs get down, I really like the low defection and papers that you guys, that Lena and your colleagues wrote. You know, I think batteries aren't going to be about getting off the system. They're going to be about pushing back. Though we are seeing large customers going off the system. You know, we just saw last week MGM in, in, in Nevada just told Nevada Energy, now we don't want to buy from you anymore. We're just going right. to electricity. So they got to watch out. I think what you see there, there's a term for it, like going around or whatever, you'll see maybe with smaller and smaller customers over time. That's right. I mean, you put in those kinds of sort of punitive or Pagovian measures and then people work around them. They circumvent them, and uh, ultimately they become self-defeating. Yeah. The other thing to think about, though, for the, the utopian real-timers is they're kind of control system issues. There's this whole community of academics that think about nonlinear programming and control. You know, they control airplanes and stuff like that, and they, they control factories, and they think about how you apply that mathematics to power plants and, and, and grids and stuff like that. And it's fascinating to think about this new grid with way more actors in it and much more distributed and how that's going to play out and what type of algorithms are at play. And, and sometimes I dip into those papers 
And I read one recently that talked about how if you had really a lot of real-time responsive load, so a lot of load that was responding to real-time prices in the wholesale markets, there's an instability that develops where the, the real-time price would start going like all over the place. And so I think we have to think hard about some of the effort that we've done in thinking about kind of production cost planning and so on that, that people have done for renewable energy futures. Some of that type of effort needs to go into thinking about the kind of stability of these these aggregated algorithms. I mean, I, I'm confident that we can get distributed systems that are more resilient and, and work better for everyone, but but it's not an automatic thing. Yeah, and that brings up the next point that I wanted to make was the this importance of dealing with the physical reality of managing the grid. And you know, as you heard in episode 10 in our interview with Lorenzo Kristov of Kaiso, it's relatively easy to transition to markets that work around DERs or that favor DERs, but the physical reality of managing a balancing area is another matter altogether. And whatever grid you end up with, it has to obey the laws of physics. So what are some of the obstacles or disconnects that you see between, you know, kind of this evolution of business models on the one side with the physical reality of managing an ISO on the other? Well, I, I like Lorenzo a lot. He's a you know wonderful guy and very thoughtful, very creative, and I have a lot of respect for him. Uh, uh, <laughs> there are physical realities. You can't go around the physics. You can't wish things away. But that being said, I think a lot of the barriers are still institutional and cultural. You know, institutional. Well, look at California. We're going to this EIM energy imbalance market. It allows us to kind of trade our reserves with other balancing areas. I think that will help us. California is occasionally curtailing solar. They're That's saying, right. oh, we've got too much solar. I mean, if you look at like what's on the grid then, it's tons of like thermal generation, tons of imports coming in. That's right. And why are we curtailing renewables when we could be phasing out the baseload instead? Right. And a lot of it has to do with contracts, you know, things on self-dispatch, how the contracts for imports are, how the contracts are for the transmission, mm. how the rules are written yeah. and how people are used to thinking about it. Yeah. So... You know, first and foremost, it's kind of like with the energy efficiency people, like the first thing you should do is think about being more efficient with your system, then think about how to like provide for its needs. Similarly, with flexibility and, and reliability, the first thing you need to do is kind of look at the latent capacities in the system and how you can unlock them. Because one thing we've seen is you see these studies. I mean, you talked about how these studies are kind of nirvana, like we can get to 80% and uh, we're really not sure that's true. But, you know, we've seen the opposite thing over time where people do studies like, oh, yeah, 10% renewable is fine. But when we get to 20%, all hell's going to break loose. Right. And you get to 20%, there's like a new set of studies. Oh, yeah, well, actually, we did this, we tweaked that, and, you know, but now like 30%. Oh, that's really going to kill the system. Right. You know, and we've seen that evolution happen over and over and over again. You bet. So at the end of the day, it goes back to one of the things I was saying. It's an issue of trust. It's a little easier for a system operator like the California one or the Texas one or the New York one that has a kind of state-based governance, that's a nonprofit with state-based governance, though they ha they're not always as productive in, in discussions as, as they could be. I mean, I think there's still like internal cultural issues and also kind of the risk mindset, you know, like if I don't do anything different, then I'm not in trouble. But if I do something different and something breaks, then it's my fault. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a hard reality that people at a system, you know, have to deal with. Yeah. But like with some of the bigger, you know, system operators and multi-state and so on, where you know, a lot of the stakeholders are generators and incumbents, 
then you know you start worrying well okay well, what's this change of rule that you want to do for a regulation of this or whatever is this really a way to make sure your coal plant doesn't go out of business right or is this really something that we need for reliability or maybe you've convinced yourself that the only way to have reliability is for your coal plant to not go out of business but is that really true so i think it's this trust element that's really a problem yeah i think you're absolutely right about that not just the trust aspect of it but you know, let's face it, in energy transition, there are going to be winners and losers. There are going to be people that capture new market share, and there are going to be people that are saddled with stranded assets and struggle to find a way to amortize their way out of it. These are real issues, and this is real money, lots of it on the table. Yeah, to give you an example of that, I just wrote an article for our, our trending topics. It'll probably get published in uh, GTM like in the next week or two, maybe where I looked at the Texas market and kind of what the advantage has been to not have a capacity market there. Really? Yeah. That's an so, interesting subject. Yeah. Hopefully the listeners, by the time they hear this, will have that available. But what I concluded was if you start with a paradigm that capacity markets need to compensate for energy markets. So just for people to understand this, wholesale markets have a the main element is what's called the energy market that pays people on an hourly basis and so on for the energy they provide. But then there was this issue of so-called missing money. Basically, plants were not making enough money in this energy market to kind of pay back their investors or pay for upgrades and whatever to make these plants work. And so naturally, regulators worry that either some plants won't stick around, you know, they'll break down or new plants won't come in. So Part of the way of managing that is these capacity markets. So capacity markets or forward capacity markets pay people to be around in three years and so on and kind of give a signal to power plants that this is a good market to be in. And one way that people evaluate these things is are they paying power plants between the energy market and the capacity market enough so that somebody might want to build a new power plant, right. cost of new entry. So Texas in 2014 was really considering this and they'd had a, a couple close calls and they were looking at, at reserve margins in the future that were kind of diminishing. Yep. And they decided not to. And over the years since then, in the last two years, their reserve margins have gone up. Truly because they're going through an energy transition. They're building more gas and wind. And they still have the coal there. So they still have a lot of capacity coming online. But there's nowhere enough money to really justify these investments. And it's really killing the coal plants right now. And and so the way I looked at the kind of revenue coming in for, say, a gas plant, and I said, well, suppose there was a capacity market that was compensating them at the level of cost of new entry. It would be something like $50 per kilowatt per year or something like that. That's the unit they use. But it boiled down to, over two years, $9 billion. That's $9 billion you'd be paying into plants if you were kind of operating under that paradigm. Just to maintain the capacity. Yeah, just to keep them in that market. Yeah. With the idea of providing cost of new entry level right, revenues. Right. And that's basically not taking advantage of the transition for the customers. That's right. There's some people in the middle of losing a lot, and there's some people in the middle of gaining. So it is really big money. That's a fascinating example. I remember looking at that whole debate that Texas was having over whether or not it should implement a capacity market. And there were not clear, straightforward answers by any means. It's really a difficult question. Yeah, and it, it involves kind of nested feedback loops. You know, there's the, right. the, the structure of the energy market that, that tells you how people behave, and then there's, you know, the outcomes from the energy market that structure kind of people making investment decisions. And so it's not always easy to understand what the long-term consequence of any policy changes. 
I wrote an article a couple of years ago after visiting Australia and speaking at a conference for the Western Australian electricity markets where, you know, I looked at the example of what happened in Western Australia where they actually did create a capacity market. And the outcome of it was they wound up with all kinds of capacity that no one needed anymore because so many people had started putting on rooftop solar systems and improving their efficiency. And there were some other market changes. But the, the bottom line was that, you know, your ratepayers wound up paying a whole lot more for electricity than they should have been because they were paying for all this capacity that was sitting there unused. Yeah, I saw that in your Twitter feed, uh, the Western Australian grid. Yeah. Australia is fascinating to follow. You know, my wife is Australian, so I have particular interest. But mm. I think even for people not related to Australia, it's a really interesting continent to track. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of interesting examples to be found there in, in the electricity market. Well, for one final question, then, and then I'll let you go. You know, this conversation wouldn't be complete without talking about cost. That's all that most regular people care about. The adoption of renewables was certainly slower than it needed to be until we figured out how to use financial instruments to turn their big upfront costs of renewables into more affordable long-term cash flows. And now that we've gotten that part figured out and renewables are growing quickly, I think what most people want to know is, you know, as we head into this ideal, highly renewable distributed grid, Will it ultimately be more or less expensive than if we had remained with the status quo? And I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, it's a really good question. One thing I tell people is you got to keep track of costs. Like when I was writing this Texas piece, I showed it to a friend of mine who's an expert on power markets, but he's been concentrating more on, on Germany. And he questioned some of the comments I made in the paper, just kind of asides about how much wind and solar had gone down since 2012. You know, he said, oh, I can't have gone down that much. Yeah, I went and looked at the you know, latest data from like Lawrence Berkeley Labs, which not always even the, the most up-to-date in terms of cost, it's a bit rear-facing. And it was down 40% on one and 50% on the other. So it's amazing how quickly these costs are moving around. So, yeah. you know, what I might say today could be completely contradicted tomorrow. Mm. So my sense is the costs are just driving down. So the raw energy coming out of the systems is just going to be so cheap. I don't want to sound like the old nuclear guys, too cheap to meter and so on. But already in Colorado, wind is competing with just operational costs of coal plants. Yeah. So, you know, even if you got the coal plant for free, you couldn't compete with a wind farm. Yeah. And that's just going to keep happening. So then the question is, well, how expensive is that flexibility infrastructure, you know, managing that power system with no fuel in it? And since we don't really know what that system is going to be like, I don't know, but I think, you know, my sense is there are a lot of opportunities on the demand side, and I think storage is also getting cheaper and and co-evolving with technologies like solar, you know, where, where solar prices going down helps the market for storage, and that increased market drives those prices down, which then improves the market for solar and so on. So I think we could see a dramatically cheaper system. I mean, already the studies like Renewable Energy Futures were looking at systems that were you know, slightly more expensive at cost parity. And they were looking at much higher capital costs for renewable energy. So, you know, with the prices we're seeing today, we could be building systems that are much cheaper. Now, there's plenty of ways to build the systems too expensive. Like I said, that's one of the things we really have to watch out for because if the leading states kind of take a really bad dead end and spend too much money, it's going to really slow us down. And part of the reason why PV is doing so well in parts of Australia is they have insane gold plating going on, you know, where PV in Queensland, where my wife is from, 
is cheaper than the cost of delivering the power. So if you were getting free power from utility-scale power plants, you still couldn't compete with the PV <laughs> because they, you know, they built up so much distribution infrastructure. So there are plenty of ways to make it expensive. But I think if it's done right, it could be a lot cheaper. And also more equitable and fewer emissions impact on poor communities, more jobs. I mean, we already see a way more jobs in the solar sector than there ever were in the coal sector. You know, it's not uh, even. There's definitely winners and losers like you talked about. But I think a power system that's driven by ingenuity and invention and working capital, people out there building stuff and putting stuff up, is in the long run better for our society than one that's built on digging stuff out of the ground and burning it. <laughs> you know, I couldn't have said it better myself. And that's a great note to end this on. Thank you, Eric, so much. This has been a really fun conversation. Thanks a lot, Chris. It was really fun for me, too. That was Eric Gimong, a researcher and policy advisor on power sector transformation and a senior fellow with Energy Innovation, an energy and environmental consulting NGO, speaking with us from Berkeley, California. I like Eric's take on how much knowledge we really need about the trajectory of energy transition and how much we really need to be able to anticipate the future composition and operation of the grid. The reality is that our modeling capabilities are limited, and there are trillions of dollars on the line, and all we can really say for sure is that transition is not a crazy thing to do, and then figure it out as we go, while trying to keep the majority of participants relatively whole, and keeping the benefits of the old and the new as we go along. We don't really know what the future grid will look like, and we don't really know how we'll get there, and that's just going to have to be good enough. I also really liked his concept of an energy box that might negotiate the blocks and squiggles of grid power transactions with utilities in the future. I think such a piece of hardware is actually a pretty elegant idea that could help resolve what is becoming a pretty balkanized internet of things in our homes and businesses, and that it would enable a number of grid balancing and optimization activities that aren't really practical today. But most of all, I liked his focus on goal-oriented transition strategies and performance-based regulation. Because we don't really know what the best solutions are decades in advance, particularly in a time of very rapid technological change, the best we can do is to set goals, create appropriate incentives and markets, and then let the market and our social objectives guide us. We are moving from over a century of continuous electricity demand growth and system expansion to an era of fuel transition, grid optimization, and even contraction. And that demands that our attitudes change too from one of expansion and manifest destiny to one that is responsive, humble, and risk-averse. Balancing the grid with all these new resources that aren't centrally controlled will increasingly start to look like demand following generation and not the other way around. Buildings to
And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item one, a report from the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis finds that China's coal production dropped by more than 15% year over year in May, double the decline rate of 2015. And according to Platts, China's thermal coal imports are likewise down nearly 19% year over year in April. The IEEFA report asserts that China is well past peak coal and that the country is transitioning away from coal faster than anyone expected. Even with the decline in coal use, the country's electricity consumption is actually up almost 1% this year as hydro, nuclear, wind, and solar generation continue to grow. Meanwhile, EV sales have nearly doubled, and the report speculates that China may sell 1 million of them annually by next year. That's about as many as the entire world bought in 2015. Item 2. A new report from Rocky Mountain Institute, of which I was the primary author, finds that electric vehicles can be a powerful, flexible load and help optimize the entire grid. If utilities anticipate the load of charging EVs and plan for it proactively, they can capture numerous benefits for the grid and for customers, potentially even reduce the cost of electricity. But if they respond too late and reactively, Utilities are likely to be forced into making expensive investments in new peak capacity, make the grid less efficient, and drive up the cost of electricity. I'll link to that paper in the show notes, as it touches on many of the grid optimization issues we discussed in this interview, as well as the topic of EVs more generally, as we discussed in episode 15. Item 3. On a related note, Tesla Motors has announced an offer to buy SolarCity in an all-stock $2.5 billion deal that would give SolarCity investors a 21 to 30% premium over its current stock price. Elon Musk, who already owns about one-fifth of each company, pitched the marriage this way. We would be the world's only vertically integrated energy company offering end-to-end -end clean energy products to our customers. This would start with the car that you drive and the energy that you use to charge it and would extend to how everything else in your home or business is powered. Now that's a powerful vision, and if anyone can pull it off, it would probably be Musk. And that concept lands right in the sweet spot of the opportunity that we detailed in our new paper on EV grid integration. But in the details of the deal lurk more than a few devils, which Liam Denning detailed in a pair of trenchant articles we've listed in the show notes. The upshot? This looks an awful lot like a bailout for SolarCity, despite Musk's dismissal of the idea, and both companies remain solid loss makers. But I'd like to retain a little optimism about the young couple's prospects for a happy life, at least for now. And finally, item four, Pacific Gas and Electric has announced its proposal to close Diablo Canyon, California's last remaining nuclear plant. The reason? Because it costs more than power from natural gas, solar, and wind. When the plant retires at the end of its original license, nine years from now, the economics of nuclear will be even worse. This will be no surprise to listeners who have read my articles on California closing its San Onofre nuclear plant back in 2013 or to anyone who has paid attention to the economics of running a nuclear reactor in the U.S. The dream of power too cheap to meter is well and truly dead, it seems, having never even become a reality after more than four decades of nuclear power. The usual bunch of nuclear proponents cried foul in a flurry of articles that were even more unhinged than usual, but unless and until we decide to put a price on carbon, which would equally benefit renewables, of course, and hardly guarantee economic viability for nuclear plants, it seems that the retirement of U.S. nuclear capacity is only going to continue, if not accelerate. We've linked to a handful of articles about it in the show notes, including an analysis by RMI founder Amory Lovins, 
which showed that if we took the money that it cost to keep the Diablo Canyon plant running and applied it instead to lower cost renewables, demand response, and efficiency upgrades, it could deliver significantly more zero carbon resources than the Diablo plant could. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.